0: What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Khanna. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. With the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired, or more connected than when you pressed play. Whereas the long ad read, you will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. Hello, what is up? I am so stoked that you're here. I am in full... Content creation mode right now. I just got back from a great trip to Vancouver for the Voyager's Table Leadership Retreat. That was very, very productive. I literally leave tomorrow for New York City, and that's when this whole big road trip bonanza will begin. So I literally have one day in Seattle. And I'm taking the time to, you know, be in the studio, be in my place, and shoot this podcast episode. Shout out to everyone that's been offering spots to stay on the road trip or, you know, tours of their city. It's sincerely such a pleasure. To see the hospitality, and it gives me this weird sense of like a humble brag to be able to say that my audience is real and genuine and is actually just a group of people that I feel like I can connect with if I'm on the road. So, shout out to you folks. I love it. Also, this goes for everyone not in the US. I'm crazy grateful that I get to share my adventures and learnings with you. You know, the the internet is a beautiful thing and it allows this connection to happen. But as a quick housekeeping bit, I did send everyone on the newsletter squad list a RSVP sheet for a meetup that I'm going to do in LA for anybody that's in LA or going to be in LA in February. We're going to go get tacos at Gorilla Tacos. It's on a Monday, which should hopefully help for the industry folks that have, you know busy. Thursday, Friday, Saturdays in their lives or Sunday brunches. So it is linked up on Patreon right now. If you want to go check that out, um that the the RSVP sheet, it's like a uh it's just like a Google Docs form that I created where I'll get your name and your email and then that will kind of give me a sense of who is able to come. And please don't uh, be that person that RSVPs and don't come. Like I said, I, I like to think that you people are pr- pretty level-headed, so I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting so many of you, and I don't want to put the uh, link in the show notes for this RSVP sheet, because after about two weeks, that link is going to be a dead link. It's going to be obsolete, because the meetup will have already happened. So if you want to uh, learn more about per- potentially coming to Eat Tacos with Anna and I and a few other friends, I would be happy to say hi in real life. So that is one of the first public posts you'll see on Patreon.com/slash. Justin and you can go check that out there. That being said, enough about me. Let's get into some headlines. The reason you're here. CBC News posted a piece from a non industry perspective on this concept of a quote unquote ghost kitchen. So I had never heard of them being mentioned in that way before. So I, of course, had to check it out. And this is my deep, well, semi deep dive. A lot of these headlines are getting a little bit longer (laughs) as we go along. I think they're going to be just like quick reporting stories, but I end up spending quite a bit of time on them. So I'm pretty sure I was advertised to this story when I was in Canada. So that's how I got put on my radar. But the subtitle of the article says, quote, more than a dozen delivery only restaurants are being run out of this one ghost kitchen in southeast Calgary. It's a new business model that capitalizes on the popularity of delivery apps in Canada end quote. And this isn't all that different from the story that we covered from that app a few weeks back called So in Texas, where they were doing some really awesome like all-inclusive Chinese food. And when I say all-inclusive, that means you pay 1099 for the for the chicken dish, but then they don't charge you like delivery fees on top of it. Like what you see in their menu is what you get. And so it's working a little bit outside of of Uber Eats because they take the delivery service in-house. They have like a fleet of drivers that delivers to them. And they also have their own app. But as opposed to keeping the delivery in-house and building this infrastructure, the ghost kitchen concept uses the diverse offerings of a couple different concepts under one roof, and that is their unique selling point. That's what makes them different. So the article saying, quote, Someone sitting on their couch at home during ordering beef kufta from Baba's Shawarma might not realize that their order is coming in from the same address, 2808 Ogden Road Southeast, as an order of pierogies from Pepe's Polish restaurant restaurant, or a churro burger, which is exactly what it sounds like, from, you guessed it, churro burger. Each is advertised as a separate business, end quote. And the other point that really stuck out to me from this piece was the hours, right? The article references 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. as being the time when things get really, really busy for this quote-unquote ghost kitchen. And that echoes another sentiment that is being talked about um, serving the market what it actually wants. And they talk about that in the article as well. So I don't even want to know the amount of people that eat dinner alone. I feel like it is a drastically higher number than it probably was like 20 or 30 years ago. And we've talked about that on the show before, but the ones that do, the people that do eat dinner alone, they want options. They want want convenience and they don't want to drive halfway across town if they get a pierogi craving it's way easier to just whip out your phone and call on Uber Eats to help so I don't think this is going to be the be-all, end-all of concepts. I don't think every single you know, chef is going to want to drop what they're doing and go pursue a ghost kitchen concept. But I definitely think, I, I, I don't think services like Uber Eats or Fedora are going anywhere. So I think that we're going to start to see a little bit more of this uh, popping up. And all it's going to take is someone to, instead of opening a food hall, they open a delivery-only concept. And I think back to like someone like Alex Stupak, who wants to do like a couple different concepts uh, with some of his chefs. If If he can have his empions that does tacos and then he has someone else that does Filipino food and then someone else that does Polish food, they can all open like a ghost kitchen together and offer delivery of all of those menu items, which would kind of be cool, I guess. But the guy who they interviewed for this piece, he, he he's the one who owns the the Ghost Kitchen. He's an insurance agent. He's not a chef. He's not a restaurateur. So it's clearly an idea that has deeper roots in uh, having a sound business rather than hospitality per se. Right. If you can think about how that fifty pound bag of onions will work across four different menus, that's kind of the mindset shift you have to have, rather than how to decorate the dining room or what type of Urban to stock in the bar program. Does that make sense? So it's truly to each their own. I cover these stories so that you can get a sense of the rapidly changing landscape that we're seeing happen right before our eyes. You know what I mean? So, so much of the show is to share with you. Look, be- just because you're a chef doesn't mean you have to work at a five-star hotel. Or guess what? You're a really talented some. You don't have to stick it out at the cliche French restaurant, right? And I'm going to continue to bring these kinds of stories up because I think they're absolutely fascinating. And so many of these concepts, before things like Uber Eats, before um, the, the technology advanced to this point, these concepts weren't necessarily possible. So it's going to be interesting to see as emerging technologies can find other avenues to um, work with people like us. So I think that's kind of cool. Massimo Botura is getting into the luxury hotel business. So him and his wife, Lara Gilmore, are opening a spot 20 minutes away from Austria-Franciscana. It is going to be a 12-room house called Maria Luigia. They are definitely going for those countryside Airbnb Airbnb vibes where Eater presents it as the ultimate Francesca- Austria-Franciscana experience. So they reference it as you, you pay $300 for the tasting menu, and then you would stay in this uh, Maria Luigia at, uh, for $519 a night night. And that's what they're quoting as the average nightly rate for a room. So I think they're also going to capitalize on a lot of the other people traveling through that area of Italy with disposable income. Um, Yes, a lot of people go to Modena for Austria-Francescana, but there are also sports car tours, and balsamic, and wine, and cheese making activities, and of course all the ancient sites, and I think there's enough to do where they will absolutely get people who aren't even eating at the restaurant, which I think is great, and it's a smart business concept for them to pursue. It's also small enough where I feel like they can have a little bit of control, and they don't have to worry. It's not an all-inclusive 300 room resort. There's literally 12 rooms, and it's like a large house, so I think that's great. I did a quick hotels.com search just to kind of like compare and contrast what the other options are in the area and where you could possibly stay outside or near Modena. And literally there's only one spot that's priced over $450 and it looks like a hotel room straight out of the nineties. So to me, it it seems like they're taking all of the good and they don't really have much uh, as far as people to compete with. I, I I, the thing I didn't look at though is Airbnbs and I feel like, like when Anna and I went to Modena last January. We stayed in an Airbnb, like literally the center of town, and it was amazing. It wasn't a $500 a night room, but it was still a decent Airbnb. And I feel like, especially in some of these smaller European cities, that's the move as opposed to a a hotel. So if you do pay that $519 a a night Rate, what does that get you? Well, apparently, Botura and Gilmore have a collection of art from the likes of Matthew Benny, Tracy Emin, and Andy Warhol inside of this um, fancy house. Plus, outside of the main stone house, there's a tennis court, a swimming pool, and grounds that double as a sculpture garden. So, in addition to this update, I was also reminded of all the other projects that uh, Massimo is working on. He's opening, uh, quote, Torno Subito, a restaurant at Dubai's W Hotel. He's also also working on a new restaurant for Gucci in Beverly Hills, and a follow up to his cafe in Florence. Uh, Botura is a Gucci brand ambassador. We're going to talk about that later in the show. And then Botura's soup kitchen project, Food for Soul, has Refectorios in San Francisco and the Yucatan in the works. So he's a busy man, and he's got a lot of stuff going on. But I think that's a really fascinating thing for to see him do outside of like he's kind of becoming a little bit more multifaceted. And it goes back to the idea um, that I've mentioned numerous times where. In your career, you can have multiple different projects uh, going on. So next up, this is one of those headlines that I'm covering because I was so surprised by the concept and the ethos of the article, not necessarily the actual content of the article. And this actually begins um, a bit of a Grub Street tear so, uh, on the headlines front. We got like four Grub Street headlines in a row, so strap in for that. This headline reads, quote, Introducing the Underground Gourmet Plan B Restaurant Determinator. End quote. And it's effectively exactly what it sounds like. They made a list of oh, you can't get into Frenchette here's what the wait here's where to wait if the host tells you it's going to be 45 minutes. And then if you schlepped it all the way across Manhattan and it's going to be two hours, here's a plan B and a plan C and a plan D to make sure that you still get dinner. And to understand this very big city problem, one of the first lines of the article says, quote, blame rigged online booking systems, mob inducing walk in only policies and the vanishing telephone reservationist, end quote. So let's unpack a few of those because it's it's, it's questionable to me. So can someone please explain to me what a rigged online booking system does? Because unless you're the type of person that uses a bot to book tables for yourself automatically when the restaurant releases tables 30 days in advance at 10 a.m., or maybe someone that books tables at multiple restaurants in one night because you, they don't have a cancellation policy, which I got to say kind of makes you a scumbag, I don't think that the game is rigged. I just think that you're upset that the restaurant you want to go eat at is so popular and doesn't have availability. So some someone please tweet at me or let me know in the comments what a rigged online booking system looks like like because this sounds like a first world problem complaint to me but moving on the second one mob inducing walk-in only policies look I get it if your restaurant is good enough to be full every single night why would you want to hire a reservationist right like why give money to open table to manage reservations for you if you're popular enough to get the business anyways right if you couldn't care less about googling your guests before they arrive why would you take reservations right however from the guest perspective and this is me trying to be my own, from my own guest perspective. What's frustrating for me is the fact that, yes, I am going to have to drive 33 minutes to get to your restaurant because traffic sucks on a Friday night. And yes, it is cold outside. And no, I don't want to get an order of wings from the bar across the street when I wait. I came all the way over here because I want to eat your food. And it's frustrating when you'll sometimes call and they'll say things like, no, we can't put your name on a list until your whole entire party's here, right? And I also totally get the fact that some people probably ruined it for all of us that you know that they'll say that they're a party of 4, they say they'll be there in 40 minutes, they don't show up for an hour and a half, the table sits there and everybody in line is pissed cuz they see a table of 4 that's just sitting there and someone leaves a nasty Yelp review and boom, in person walk-ins only. That's the system we're going to follow because Jack's party of four didn't show up last week. Right. But still, I think that having some sort of level structure of like, it's going to be 20 minutes, it's going to be about an hour. And then getting to the point where literally telling people if they call on the phone, there's no chance in hell you're getting a table tonight. That can maybe ease a little bit of those, like some of those initial pangs that come, that come with telling the customers no, because that's part of the problem, right? No, no restaurateur, no hospitality professional enjoys telling the customer no. Um, Unless you're kind of like one of those weird sociopaths that that gets a kick out of that, but you know, I digress. I saw a really great model at this place called State Provisions in San Francisco. And I want to use that kind of as a case study, because back in the day, they would take, I'm not sure if they do this now anymore, but they would take reservations, but they would also accept walk-ins so that if you didn't get a table through a reservation, all you had to do was show up in advance of one of their seatings. So I think they opened at five. So if you showed up at like 430 and stood in line, like stood outside the restaurant and waited for like 30 minutes, chances are you're probably going to get a table or they'll put you on a list for their like their second seating at seven. And then, like that was a kind of a simple way to make everybody happy while fusing a couple of these different concepts. I think that um, the one and only constant walk-ins only can be harmful for, for for certain places, especially like if you're in one of those trendy neighborhoods that people have to travel to get to. But I I, I don't know. I thought the state bird provisions concept was awesome of them being able to like yes, if you want to plan in advance, we're happy to take you. But if you want to wait outside, and they would also have like a ten seat or like twelve. seat counter um, where you could get in. And it was so funny. My first time eating at State per Provisions, I stood. I didn't even take a seat at the counter. I stood at the end of the counter with my friend John. And we that's how we had our first meal at State per Provisions. Um, but I digress. Back to the article. So the last piece that they bring up is this vanishing telephone reservationist. Listen, pal, just because you're going to try to sweet talk them or carry on about the fact that you're a writer for Grub Street doesn't change the fact that they are packed tonight, right? Like, there's no amount of schmoozing that's going to get you a table sometimes. They're just full. And aside from the people that truly enjoy the spoken telephone reservation systems at restaurants, like, if you really enjoy doing that job... I think a lot of that work is better left to software or messaging bots or online services, right? It's cleaner. You can take deposits. It's faster. It's available 24-7. And it's actually a little bit more fair, right? Because Pete Wells and my mom have the same chance at getting a table if it's a little bit more um, just timing-based. Like If you log on at 10 a.m., you're probably going to be able to get a table. And I think that's a little bit more. There's something awesome about that, right? Um, because it's a little bit more of a level playing field. So I promised I would also speak on the utility of this piece. I didn't really find that much, but it's definitely linked to their thousand best list that we covered a few weeks ago, which I think is absolutely crazy smart of them, right? Being able to provide alternatives that are, you know, tested and will give you a great night if your first choice is full is a great way to provide value. And I'm really, really glad that they published this piece I just more or less wanted to rant on the fact that this actually exists, right? I think that's crazy that um, restaurants get so trendy and with the media cycle being the way that it is, restaurants can see these massive booms in interest and you can literally have a plan B list to to, to go around it, right? Like you're, say your restaurant gets a sudden influx of business, not because you changed anything, but because Bon Appetit gave best new restaurant to the place next door and then they have to start turning people away Have you folks had that happen at restaurants that you work at? What what was it like? Because I'm genuinely curious. I'm not 100% sure how to tie this up with a bow um, without telling someone how to run their restaurant, and that's nothing that I would ever do on this show. So maybe just consider this my social commentary on a really, really interesting problem that Grub Street is apparently attempting to solve. So there's that the it's been a minute since we've chatted through a restaurant review here on the emulsion the emulsion podcast so when i saw adam platt's review of benno by chef jonathan benno i thought it would be cool to take a look through so here we go if I had to summarize this article in one paragraph, it would be these lines, quote, But this is a much smaller operation, and as one intricately fussed over recipe succeeds another, risotto folded with crushed walnuts, dense little wheels of tête de veau bedecked with a single quail egg yolk, that coddled egg with baby mushrooms and whipped truffle mousseline hidden in its depths, you get the feeling that the chef has found a comfortable balance between intimacy, ambition, and his own highly particular gourmet style, end quote. And what's important to talk about before we get into this review a little bit deeper is the history of Chef Jonathan Benno. And what's interesting about this concept, this Benno concept, is to kind of see this uh, peak, this this summit of the evolution of Chef Jonathan Benno's kind of career arc, right? So for those that don't know, he ran per se for quite a long time, and he was able to leave and secure some funding to create Lincoln, which was a insane space, right? But it was totally not per se. Yes, it had elements of finesse. There are some things that you can't take away um, from people like that. But I remember my meal at Lincoln being a little disappointing. I was expecting higher-end Italian food, a little bit more thoughtful execution. And it was super rustic. And it was not really that cohesive. And it was scattered. And now we're seeing him swing back the other way, right? I think so many chefs, especially when they leave uh, high-profile restaurants, especially when they're in management and they're contributing creatively, they suffer from not wanting to be like their parents, right? Which in this example is the restaurant that they just left. The parent, You don't want to be like your parents. You don't want to be like the restaurant that you just left. And what happens is they'll kind of rebel against it and do a different type of food or a different price point or try to focus on a different target market or, you know, like maybe they'll do, they'll, they'll, they'll do a dessert restaurant or a brunch spot. And when I see this review, when I see the food, all the gorgeous photos that they took and I see the dining room, which you should definitely check out in the article, because like I said, they're gorgeous. Um... that's always available in the show notes, by the way. I see Jonathan Benno probably... This is the space that Jonathan Benno probably wanted to open after he left, per se. Of course, I don't know for sure, but listen, Benno probably pioneered so many things at per se. He was such a driving force in the way that per se's food looked back in you know 2009, 2010. And it sucks when you leave a place where you created some of those dishes, and then you do them on your own, and critics will say... And Adam Platt says it in the article. He says, quote, a very per se-like serving of abalone, end quote. Like, what if that was just a Benno serving of abalone and you just saw it at per se? That's a little bit frustrating. And I feel like I'm not the only chef that struggles with this sometimes where it's like, I mean, sometimes, uh, like, there are dishes that I created at Lease and, you know, sometimes, it yes, it was in service of my chef, and it was, like, stuff I was exploring during my time there, but then I stayed at that restaurant for so long because I was so interested in the food and because I was so passionate about what was happening, and then if I leave and I try to do my own food, but it kind of looks a little bit like Lease Verket food, I get bash for not being creative enough, and I think that's a very interesting... Um, I don't know. I I don't really know what to say about it. If if anybody has thoughts on this, please let me know um, because it's something that I want to kind of articulate a little bit more and maybe find a way to get ahead of as a culture. Um, So digressing again, another interesting couple of sentences in the review here is, quote, Benno has always been more of a technician than an innovator. So there's nothing very groundbreaking about this gourmet style, of course. The menu is filled with favorite themes from days gone by, showcasing classic French technique and contemporary Italian cooking is is the website's tagline, end quote which coming from Thomas Keller restaurants I've also heard that Benno isn't is more of a technician than an innovator like he's insanely technically sound he can do so many things with food he's he's very very um, disciplined and skilled but he's not going to create the next green apple balloon if that makes sense and I truly think that's so hard to come up with something new these days. And so there's value in saying, you know, look, I'm super passionate about classic French technique. I love pasta. I love Italian food. So that's what I serve in my restaurant, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. So if anything... It's way more impressive than the kid down the street trying to copy Jordan Kahn or Grant Ackett's and saying that they're being, quote unquote, creative, right? So I don't want Adam Platt's criticism of Benno being more of a technician than an innovator to come across as negative Um, because, of course, his job is to try to find the next uh, hot, trendy thing. So, of course, he's going to be a little bit more. uh, He's going to downplay that a little bit, right? So the last bit on the article, they give uh, Benno 87 out of 100. And again, that's in reference to the 1,000 best list that we chatted about a couple of weeks ago. And a cool piece that they also include at the end of the review was the ideal meal, which I applaud because it seems like they visit the restaurant numerous times. It seems like, um, especially from the photos that they took, they were able to get a little bit of um, a photo shoot from themselves and try a couple of different things. And that doesn't always happen with all reviews, right? Because as a diner, I like to be able to know what to order especially if I'm only going to have one meal in New York City and I want to eat at Beno, I would want to know what to order from the perspective of someone who's been there a couple of times. So the next headline, you remember uh, Sebastian Bra, that's the chef who gave back his Michelin stars last year. He's back in the news because Michelin awarded him two stars in their 2019 guide, and he's stuck with them, apparently. Michelin saying, quote, last year when Sebastian Bra expressed his wish to not see his establishment in the guide, his restaurant, Souquet, was in a full transition period. The emotion and sincerely expressed by the chef was really touched us, and after much consideration and reflection, we decided to give the chef time to mature his concept in his culinary history and agreed to not mention his address in the guide. Nevertheless, our inspectors have not stopped following the restaurant, which offers very high quality cuisine. As a result, after finding that within a year the chef had redefined his concept, we made the decision to recommend again to our readers his exceptional address. Not mentioning this address to our readers was therefore against the rapport and trust that we've built with them over many years. And that's kind of like, must be nice, huh? No, it must be nice to just like, oh, darn, I got two Michelin stars again. I think this goes back to my frustration with the world's 50 best bending over backwards to seem more, quote unquote, inclusive and to avoid the negative press, right? Sometimes you just have to take the good with the bad. And that's what Michelin is kind of doing. They're playing an infinite game here. They're like, we know why our guide exists. We know we provide value. And some people might not like it, but this is what we do. And I applaud that. I applaud them for kind of like sticking their heels in. And it's a funny piece that. Michelin said that a restaurant had no choice but to live under the pressure, Um, which is so funny because it's true, right? I I saw that as a tipping point for Sebastian last year. The pressure was on. He was probably super frustrated with everything that was happening. But the reality is, if you're going to be in the arena, you have to be willing to take the cheers and the boos that come with being in the arena. And we're all going to respect you for it because we know what it also feels like to be in the arena. And I don't think this will be the last time that we see a chef give back the Michelin stars, but... I'm certainly happy to kind of see everyone come out the other side of that whole fiasco because last year, man, it was such a clickable piece. Everybody wanted to know about it, Um, and I saw an update on it, so I figured I would update you on it. Whew. We've been spending a lot of time on headlines, huh? The last one, this is the last one, I promise. I'm gonna go back to Adam Platt real quick. This is again another Grub, Ste- Grub Street piece, but he published his list of the absolute best tasting menus in New York City right now. And the list from 10 to 1 goes uh, Sechu Yokota, Gem from Flimnagari, Uchu, Blanca, Okuda, uh, Shabu Shabu Macron- Mocaron, uh Atera, Adamix, At- Uh, Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair, and then number one, Momofuku Ko. Hooray, I'm eating there tomorrow night. So, so, so excited, so stay tuned for that This Place Called episode, because it's gonna be dope. Um, Eating there with my best friend, John. It's gonna be super awesome before we kick off our road trip. But it seems to me... With the exception of Blanca and Atera, a surprising amount of these places have Korean or Japanese influence, and he even includes that in his little blurb of Gem, that he sees a lot of Japanese influence in Flynn McGarry's cooking. So it seems like with all the kind of dining trends whizzing by us, high-end Japanese food is here to stay, at least in fine dining. And you'll even see it sometimes on the Korean side of of food, where you'll, um, I'm pretty sure from the story I covered on at- Atomix the other day, or Atomix, that they are also taking kind of like a Japanese Kaiseki approach, but using Korean techniques, Korean ingredients, Korean philosophy behind it, which is really interesting. So that's going to do it for headlines. The main stories come first, but first, today's beverage. Main stories come next, but first. Let's go, Justin. Um, Mushroom coffee. I (laughs) had uh, my, my trip in Vancouver was full with so much coffee. We were like... In meetings all day basically and coffee was free-flowing and then we went back to downtown Vancouver and we did two days in a WeWork office where they have like nice espresso machines where you can get Americanos all day long and I've just been super strung out on coffee the past few days so I had my cup this morning the mushroom coffee has a little bit less um, caffeine than normal cups so I'm looking at this to kind of reset my my system because I had to be at the airport at like 5 30 tomorrow morning I should have drank it when it was hotter that's, that's how you know how long this headline section has been. The mushroom coffee isn't ripping hot anymore. Okay, I also want to take a moment to give a shout out to the new awesome folks that are supporting on Patreon this month. I've got Brennan Y, Allie H, Calvin T, Alexander H, and Andrew L. Yes, I'm sure all that info is public on Patreon as far as your last names go, but I'm doing my best to respect your identity. Thank you so much for all the new folks and everyone who continues to support this show. It truly, truly means a lot, and I appreciate it. It doesn't also just support this show, it supports like all of my content that I'm creating. So, really, 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 um, it means a lot. So, thank you. And I also hope that if you aren't supporting, you're enjoying some of that. If you are supporting, you're enjoying some of that bonus content um, that I'm dishing out over on Patreon. So, if you want to learn a little bit more about how you can financially, support what I do. That is linked up in the description of this podcast or right below this YouTube video. Okie dokie. Staying on the Grub Street train, I guess this is also another Grub Street article. We've got this piece here called, quote, I don't want my dinner to also be an ad. End quote. Which, as someone who is wanting to use advertising and sponsorships and partnering with brands as a way to support what I do, I thought this was a super interesting article. So let's talk about this rant that um, Chris Crowley went on. Chris Crowley is the author, and he starts with the example of a concept by Lexus called Intersect by Lexus, and it's in all caps. It's it's very loud and and in your face. And they've got locations right now in New York City, in Dubai, as well as in Tokyo. But this one in particular, the New York one, is is unique because it's run by Danny Meyer's Union Square Hospitality Group, which, little known fact, I didn't know that that opened like that, so. And it's apparently showing, quote, restaurant critics from both The New York Times and Eater reviewed Intersect by Lexus, and even more surprisingly, each critic seemed to kind of like it. The Times critic Pete Wells writes, quote, I'd go well out of my way to eat upstairs at Intersect again. And on Eater, Ryan Sutton opines that the staff, quote, can afford to experiment a bit more, end quote, and that an independent restaurant writes because Lexus and ultimately its parent company, Toyota, underwrites the whole thing. End quote. So there's the good, but then Crowley references the point that I was kind of waiting for him to make when he talks about Danny Meyer and the chef, um, chef Gregory Marchand, quote, this is not to knock Meyer, Marchand, or anyone else who works at Intersect. Take Toyota's money and maybe a free car and run, I say. But there is something undeniably irritating about a major corporation co-opting the tenants of fine dining to put some added shine onto its hubcaps. Intersect seems to offer a serviceable, if somewhat tame, dining experience. There are obviously Talented people working there, but it's a bummer to think about the original, boundary-pushing food that they might otherwise be cooking. End quote. So, if you're kind of sensing the blood that this guy is um, is is feeling after his experience there, because he then talks about the fact that great restaurants tell stories. There's an identity behind them; they're trying to say something with their food. And giving examples of the work of David Chang and Gramercy Tavern and J.J. Johnson, and complaining that quote the only story that Intersex tells is quote by a car end quote. And he continues to speak on a couple of other issues which you're free to read in the full article that's linked up in the show notes. I'm going to reference a few of them in a second, but I wanted to make my case here on this article because it's a line we're continually seeing to blur and bend and twist as the landscape and economics change. So this concept is nothing new, right? A company sponsoring a chef or a company putting money to get their name out to a restaurant, right? I remember the first time I truly saw brand partnerships was with uh, Ferran Adria and his apron. Does anybody remember that back in the day? where he, he, his, he had a chef coat on, and sometimes his chef coat had a name on it, but then his apron was just, like, littered with logos. And he, it was like he was a professional soccer player, right? And it extended beyond that, too. Other Spanish chefs started doing it, um, especially the ones on the more modernist cuisine end of the spectrum. And the article references chefs partnering with brands on projects like Kellogg's and BMW and Food and & Wine. And people forget that Michelin was a tire company, that they wanted to use the work of fine dining restaurants to sell more tires. And they just did it in, like, a not-so-direct way. And then we talk about Massimo Bottura doing stores in Gucci or, you know, Tiffany's stores in New York serving breakfast. Th- these higher-end brands clearly see the value in partnering with chefs and fusing hospitality and in-person events into their businesses. And it's way easier for Lexus to interact with someone for a $95 dinner as opposed to asking them to spend $37,000 on a new coupe, Right. So I took a look at the website, this Intersect by Lexus website. I browsed the menu. It sounds like they're going to be changing the chef out every four to six months as kind of like a chef in residence program. They encourage people to come in again um, because, like, the chef is new. The menu's probably changed, so you should probably come in again. And it's true to the pillars of the concept. Uh, The pillars that they cite on their website are, quote, culinary, design, entertainment, hospitality, and technology. End quote. So what stood out to me was the fact that the menu wasn't all that creative or all that affordable either. It was like very modern American. Um, There's no starter on the menu that's cheaper than $18. And the most expensive main course reads beef tenderloin, short rib, artichoke, olive tamarind. And that costs $46. That's like the most expensive main course on the menu. And this is coming from me, right? The guy who hates when people talk about price with restaurants. But I can't help but think, wasn't the point of partnering with Lexus and creating this fusion concept to like help cut costs and make the business a little bit more profitable, right? Like, yes, it's a union square hospitality concept. So there's no tip involved. And yes, it's in New York city and the rents probably like extortion. But to me, I think this concept would have some stronger legs to stand on if it partnered with chefs that are executing on the higher end and essentially helping make their food a little bit more accessible, right? Where it's like, we're going to take um, I don't know, the chef from Momofuku Co. and we're going to do a pop-up with him, and the tickets are a little bit more affordable and accessible. But even saying that, I catch myself wondering if they that would alienate their target market, right? Like, pricing yourself in that $75 to $150 check average attracts a certain type of consumer, and those are also probably the people who are considering a Lexus if they're in the market for a car. So boom, bam, Bob's your uncle, we just got our market cornered, right? So that's that's kind of interesting to me as well. So yes, they could serve things cheaper, but they don't want to. I think that's an interesting point. So um, another topic I have to dive into, and this is for transparency's sake because I don't think this gets said enough, is that concepts like this have so many hands in the pot. When you get to be big corporate money um, I mean, it's Lexus and Danny Meyer. And, you know, then you also have to deal with the restaurant senior staff and then the landlord and then the head chef and then the interior designer and then the social media team. When you build a behemoth of a concept, if everyone's on the same page, it's really sustainable to kind of like go together in one decided direction. However, I see this as a case of being a little bit too big and a little bit too scattered. They're trying to like have too many people, the 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 too many chefs cooks in the kitchen analogy comes to mind. And it clearly shows in the product as the author of the article says, right? He seems a little bit confused with his experience. So If they were a little smaller, a little bit more nimble, a little bit more focused, they might have the room to experiment a little bit more and then create an identity for themselves instead of seeming like they just sold out to Lexus, right? I feel like a lot of people uh, envision this concept as that. And I can only imagine, right, new menu changes probably have to be approved by how many people, right? Every social media post has to be super buttoned up because, oh, you don't want to piss off the guys at Lexus if you post a photo of a new dish and they don't like how it looks, Right, and I guess this leads to me to my main question, which is a bit rhetorical, but you can maybe answer it for yourself if you have one. But the, my, my my it's it's how to find the right mix of you know on one hand you're partnering with a brand that's probably a great fit for the food that you're trying to do or the concept you're trying to launch, and they can provide financial resources and marketing resources and aesthetic resources and. Maybe they have an audience on their social media that they will send to you. And the benefit of being affiliated with a brand is kind of like this unsaid perk, right? Like, oh, Lexus trusts the chef to run their concept kind of thing. And on the other hand, you want to be nimble. You want to express yourself and create in your own way. And you want to run a profitable business. So it's truly a question of how do you mix the two, if anything? And there's no clear answer. And I think we would all be upset if there was a cut and dry answer. I think for me, this is how I've always thought about partnerships. I'm way more keen on saying yes to working with a brand that I already use and I already love as opposed to a new brand coming along and saying they want to work together just because they want one transaction post as uh, from my following right I'm also self-aware enough to know that what would Justin do right so it's kind of a weird if say Under Armour wanted to sponsor something I did I would be way more psyched if it was Nike or Adidas and that's actually what I use on the daily so I'd probably say no to someone like Under Armour right On the flip side, I don't technically own anything from this company called Blue Dot, which is a furniture store here in Seattle, but I love minimalism, and I love Scandinavian-inspired design, plus they're a Midwestern-based company, so I'm super happy to cook for almost all of their larger parties when they invite designers and architects from outside of town. So I think acknowledging when it sounds like a logical fit helps when those partnerships come up, and maybe you've never worked with them before, but I mean... I also see the 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 tit for tat nature of the transaction, right? Like if a winery approaches me and say they want to host a winemaker dinner, maybe I've never had the wine before, but they're offering an audience. They're going to pay me to cook. They're offering a venue. They're offering a creative constraint by forcing me to pair my food with their wine. And in return, they get a dinner from me and an excuse to pour people their product in a fun environment. So it's kind of a win win all around. So I'm not necessarily, like, bashing these transactional brand partnership relationships, but I think when people get frustrated, and this is me bringing it back to the article, is when it feel, it clearly feels like this is overly PR'd, right? Hashtag sponsored, right? Forced partnership where there's no actual connection. It's just like, yep, we're all just using each other, or like, yep, they wrote me a really large check, and this is what I'm going to say kind of thing. You know what I mean? That's People's bullshit radars are super, super... Um, sensitive, if that makes sense. Um, To use an example, right, Gucci CEO Marco uh, Bizzari and Massimo Bottura are childhood friends, and that's a completely authentic relationship, and it totally makes sense that they go into business together. And this just feels more like Lexus got out of a marketing meeting and they decided to approach Danny Meyer with a bunch of commas and zeros and a dotted line and asked if he would be interested. So this will definitely not be the last story that we cover on this topic, but as people get a little bit more conscious and everybody's saying that retail is dead and you find, need to find a way to kind of like bring people together together, Food is the natural way to do that. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the story. When do you feel like it makes sense for a chef or a restaurant to partner with a brand? Are you 100% against it? Do you see it as a new way for chefs to run profitable businesses? Tweet at me. Or if I'm just in your ears, um, you can also let me know on YouTube and we'll get into a conversation in the comments. So next up, I've got a piece from The Guardian here. It's titled, quote, Going Solo, The Chefs Who Work On Their Own. We're used to seeing... We're used to seeing bustling restaurant kitchens, but what, it, what is it like to be the only one behind the pass? Four chefs tell the ups and downs of doing all the cooking by themselves, end quote. And the chefs in question here are Anna Tobias of P. Franco in London, Simon Bonwick at The Crown, Ben Crittenden at Stark, and Bruce, Bruce Rennie at this place called The Shore. And what I think is cool here is that it's basically four articles in one. Uh, yes, that headline kind of like encompasses them, but they don't just interview the chefs. The chefs essentially write their own pieces by talking about how they run their kitchens. So I broke this section down. I, I, I guess my breakdown of this article is going to be on a couple different topics, and then I'm going to share how each chef um, thinks about a couple of these different themes. So on team dynamics, Anna Tobias says, "Quote, I do miss the team aspect. There's something really special about a busy night with everyone working together, feeding off each other's energy, and when it goes smoothly, there's a real sense of achievement. But it doesn't always go smoothly and often as a head chef, you get frustrated when other people aren't cooking to your standard." Which then gets flipped with Simon Bonwick when he says, "Quote, cooking all alone is all positives. There's nothing negative about it whatsoever." Even the lonely moments have upside because I'll be listening to music, which is very important to me, end quote. And then the article talks a little bit about um, asking for help. So Anna Tobias will, will say, quote, I was making bagna cauda to go with beetroot and the sauce split. Normally in a team, you can raise your hand and say, I need a little help here, but there was no one to ask. So I was furiously trying to rescue it and it just wasn't happening. I had to admit defeat. So I served the beetroot with lemon and olive oil. It was totally fine, but I felt a little bit silly as the menu had said something else. End quote. Uh, Simon Bonwick talks about being accountable to no one. He says, quote, the reason why I work by myself in the kitchen is 50% because I want to work on my own and 50% because no one will work with me. I do crazy hours to achieve what I want to achieve, and I'd expect other people to do the same, end quote. And Ben Crittenden adding to that, quote, you have times when it gets a little bit too much and then you realize you don't want to work for someone else, so you just grind it out, end quote. And then Bruce Rennie adding to the conversation, saying, "Quote: If there's nothing booked, I'll close and take the day at home. It, it gives me a bit more freedom not to just have so many people rely on me. I still need to give enough shifts to the front of house staff, but if I had to carry back a house, I couldn't do it. And what it's what and it, and what it gives me is ultimate control. I prepare everything from the bread and butter through the little fudge that goes out with the coffee." End quote. And it's not all sunshine and rainbows, right? Uh, Ben Rennie saying, quote, the psychological implications of working alone are huge. I'm alone all day and I'm an alcoholic and I've had issues with depression. I have to keep myself very engaged and very busy. And sometimes I take sometimes take myself out and go speak to the guys at the cafe down the road. I would love to have creative discussions with people and that real bouncing of ideas. End quote. Going to take a sip of a mushroom coffee here. When I hear these stories, right, a couple of examples come to mind. One was this amazing little restaurant in Brooklyn called Take Root. I don't know if anybody remembers that place. Uh, I actually reminded myself to email Elise Kornack, who was the chef there, and she's apparently retreated to the Catskills to work on her own creative projects. I'm not sure what's happening with her, but I would love to have her on the podcast and even do a dinner with her. But Take Root was her and her wife project. Uh, Elise was in the kitchen. She would do this really elegant vegetable forward seven course tasting menu and her partner would do the wine and it was like 14 seats I think and it really opened my eyes to like oh shit you don't need a whole brigade to do some really awesome food. And then they also earned one Michelin star when that place was open and I can only imagine um They were probably actually being a little bit profitable on that business. So I thought that was a really interesting concept. And the other example makes me think of those opening scenes in the movie uh, 42 Grams, where that chef goes on that rant about how he hates when you go out to eat at a restaurant and the chef isn't there. So he's kind of committing to be there every single day, blah, blah, blah. And yep, the restaurant closed and his wife got divorced. Um, Spoiler alert. But they got two Michelin stars, so it was worth it, question mark. I'm not entirely sure. So I've certainly gone through a paradigm shift myself. I'm guilty of voicing the same frustrations. Um, I love the idea of treating it like a concert. If you pay to go see Kendrick Lamar, you would kind of be pissed if someone else was up on stage lip syncing his music. And so I thought the same thing applied to chefs. But one really important piece of advice kind of changed my outlook on this whole idea. And it's this. If you, if you can't leave... If the thing that you own can't function without you there, you don't have a business, you have a job. And I'm going to kind of say that in a different way. If, if you are beholden to the success of your business, if by you being on vacation your business can't function, and if the only time that the business makes money you're there, you don't have a business, you have a job. And that was a really interesting tipping point for me. And it was really hard to hear. But books like the E Myth Revisited and The Lean Startup and Four Hour Work Week, they're all some of them are over on my uh, shelf there. They all really opened my eyes to the fact that yes, I can still do this thing that I love. I can still get those shots of adrenaline and the excitement from a killer dinner service. I can still have pride in what I create, but it doesn't have to be at the expense of my happiness or my health or my relationships. And I can build systems that, so that the thing can function without me. And I found a lot of joy in creating those systems in the past couple of years. And it's kind of reinvigorated my drive to work with teams. Um, and it's one of the reasons most of my pop-ups in 2019 will be marketed under Voyager's table, because I value being part of a team more than I value the ego boost that sometimes comes along with saying that I did everything, right? And so admittedly, part of it was that in 2018, 2017, I needed to prove to myself that I could host a couple thousand dollar dinner by myself. I needed to prove to myself that I could charge this price point for what I was doing and people would actually pay for it. And once I kind of checked the box, then it was over and then it was like, okay, I did it. And (laughs) I talk about holding those hollow trophies sometimes. Um, I was kind of like left at the finish line and I looked around and nobody was there because I was just by myself. And so I don't know. It's just an interesting thing because in all honesty, uh, being part of a team, being part of something larger than you allows for more output. And with the quality, if the quality of experience is better, then that's great, at least in my opinion. So I think it's funny that balance is always kind of forced on us sometimes. This is me getting a little bit philosophical Right. Like, cool. You run service all by yourself, but then the restaurant is closed when you get sick or if you cut your finger or when you get too drunk the night before. And then it's kind of like, yes, you were going ham, but then you have to be closed. And so then, like, over the total course of the year, you probably worked the same amount of hours as someone who was taking it a little bit easier. And then can you really say that that's better than having a boss? Because instead of one person being mad and upset that you have to miss work, now every single person who booked a table is upset, and now you've got a scarlet letter on your reputation. And I just think so much of this is ego-based, and it's just really interesting to um, see people be really transparent and admit that this is how they they, they want to run Um, Their careers. So also I need to add this as a caveat because listen to each their own. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. I just feel particularly qualified to talk about this because I've been on both sides of this coin, right? I know what it feels like to be a cog in a 70 person machine. I know what it feels like to lead a very small talented kitchen team. I also know what it feels like to be 100% on my own, like I said. And I'm also leaning now more towards the team element because for me, I genuinely enjoy being able to take a guilt-free vacation. I like the fact that my videos make money while I'm sleeping. I like being able to choose when I work. But clearly, from the article's varied perspectives, some people are horrible at doing those things. And so my takeaway for you is hopefully that fact is okay. Um, and hopefully having the self-awareness to acknowledge Some of these things is the true unlock, and I don't want you to be the person that opens a restaurant because you want to impress people. That would be my nightmare. Uh, I I don't want you to do that, right? So do it because you know it makes you the happiest if you're going to open a restaurant. So who knows? Maybe this is the first time you're hearing about this kind of a business, and you're like, holy shit, I suck at working with people. I wish I could just open a place of my own and be the only one in the kitchen. Boom. You're welcome. Getting into the last article of the show here, this is a bit of a selfish one. I wanted to clear the air because two stories were published, and it's kind of a murky situation. So a lot of you know the first restaurant I ever worked in was in the town I grew up in. It was in Appleton, Wisconsin. It was this place called Sena, and it was a kind of 35-seat world bistro is what they called it. And the kitchen team was the executive chef, a dishwasher, and me. It was super, super small, super intimate. And it was really my first time cutting my teeth in working in a restaurant. and so. I also credit it with it being a great first restaurant experience. But this article came out in the Post Crescent, which is the, the local newspaper in town. And it was it was basically sharing the news that SENA was closing. And so I had to look into it. And judging by the fact that uh, it had two articles come along with it. You can probably see where this is going. Um, So Appleton, Wisconsin has this main drag, right? And SENA is on that main drag. And a few blocks down from there, there's this Japanese spot called uh, Katsuya. And they also closed. So SENA closed, Katsuya closed. They're just a couple blocks apart. And the real story is, yes, the Santa space is closing and they're going to turn it into a more music-friendly space. And that totally makes sense to me because we used to have live music on Friday and Saturday nights when it was a restaurant. So that totally makes sense. But the chef, Colton Roberts, and then actually one of my mom's friends' sons is going to take over the Katsuya place, and then it's going to be called Fress. So it's like the ex-Sena guys are going to go and open a new restaurant, and it's going to be called Fress, and that is slated to open in the next couple of months. So that's kind of a weird update, but it's my show, so I can talk about whatever I want. Actually, I was trying to get Colton and Jim on the phone to contribute to this and hear their perspective on their plans, and I'm still going to do that. I'm going to still hop on the phone with them. It just might have to be tomorrow, and I want to get the publish the the episode published by tomorrow. So, um that phone call with my old boss will be published as a old, like a bonus piece of content on Patreon because I just think that's kind of fun. Uh, but yeah, that's the news. The first restaurant I ever worked in is closing as a restaurant. That's basically what I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of setting the record straight for some of my Appleton, Wisconsin listeners because a lot of people sent me, uh, have you seen this headline saying it's closing? And I was like, hmm, let's read into that a little bit. So there's that. Last up, industry style, we have direct answer. You folks send me a direct message and with your permission, I like to answer it here in a way that might help the greater good. This question comes from LOL Logan for the win. He says, I've been working with food for the last 13 years. I'm turning 27 on Friday. Congratulations. For me, food hasn't always been a passion, but always an easy job. I'd start somewhere new. I would need a job. I would start applying at local cafes and commercial kitchen chains and hold down a line position for a few months or years before moving on. I did the math once and I've worked in 12 to 15 kitchens regularly. Just recently, after getting married, something woke up for me in food, a passion I never really noticed. And so today I find myself working as a line cook for a small town in the USA for a local cafe, making sandwiches and salads for great pay, but it's not fueling my fire at all. How does someone like me with no culinary school at all, no network, no experience in fine dining or quote unquote high caliber food step into that world coming from the commercial world of cooking? Think Outback Steakhouse or Red Robin. Um, And he says we can dialogue more if I need more clarity. Great question. Um, I guess my first question for you would be, do you, wh- why? Like, why do you need a higher profile thing on your resume? Um is it so the passion ignites and where where do you want that to take you like what is, what is that passion i guess asking you to do is it saying that you want to be a little bit more passionate about food education you want to help kids eat healthier you want to open up you want to start working with local farmers a little bit more and you see having a high profile restaurant being the gateway that allows you to do that right like <clears throat> are you creating a soapbox for yourself um, to share your ideas by having a restaurant. I guess that would be my first question is, is is why do you need to have a high profile place on your resume? Because it seems to me like you value um, a little bit more of a neighborhood vibe. Um, like. But it also seems from your question that great pay isn't going to inspire you. So is it a case of you are seeing some of these chef's table episodes or like these a little bit more, uh, higher profile places and you're wanting to figure out what they're all about. If so, in my ask JK, uh, episode that I just did, I feel like I did a pretty decent job at answering that. Um, Basically, what I say is um, you, you should just stodge like there's there's it seems like to me there's nothing holding you back from doing that. Yes, you might say that um, Outback and Red Robin isn't a great resume piece to get in a in, into a kitchen, but don't apply for the sous chef job. You know what I mean? Like saying that you can you, you can navigate a kitchen in a way that um, can bring value to a place is sometimes enough. Right. And being able to say I want to apply for a prep position because I have all this restaurant experience, but I want to do something a little bit more elevated. Um, I don't think it says where you are geographically right now. Um, but if you're still in the U.S., I mean, there are tons of places and they don't even have to be in Michelin cities. Um, shown very clearly by like Bon Appetit and food and wine. And even James Beard giving a lot of awards to places that don't have Michelin guides. So, um, I mean, very similar to that answer I gave, Um, there's you have nothing to lose from going to stage. And even if it's just observationally, because maybe you go and you decide like, hey, there's probably a reason why I keep sticking with places that do sandwiches and salads, because I like the more casual vibe. I like the neighborhood feel. I like charging affordable prices and uh, the lunch crowd and making sure that people's lunches are fantastic instead of boring. Right. So. I would, that, that's what I would ask yourself is, um, do you need, do you need it? do you need it? And if you don't need it, then maybe figure out a way to, um, maybe you meet someone in your town who has a little bit more business savvy and through your experience of, of, you know, all the experience you have, you know, what people probably like, you know, what sells well, uh, you know, what food you're stoked about. And maybe you go on a little bit of a traveling excursion and find a business partner and open up your own place. Um, it's very difficult for me to answer some of these questions for you but um, yeah I don't think that you have uh, uh, anything to lose and I I I, <laughs> I I don't think you have that much to fear with sending someone a resume of like, Outback Steakhouse or Red Robin. Because I mean, most chefs I know had a job like that where they um, they either worked at a chain or they worked at a McDonald's or a Subway, because um, that's kind of like the entry point for, for a lot of people. So I don't think you have anything to be ashamed of. I think you're better off using some of my free email templates and getting a foot in the door in one of these places. And, and then you'll, you'll be able to go from there. Um, thank you so much for your question. This is one that I feel like a lot of people can resonate with. There's a lot of um, not just people wanting to go from um, casual to fine dining, but also people who are like career changers, who are like, listen, I used to be a history teacher for 20 years, and now I want to do food. Um, And so I'm super happy to help however I can. But because I can't be a free internet therapist 24-7, I do offer one-on-one coaching calls. I feel like I have to keep reminding people because I mention it sometimes in a DM, and they're like, what? I didn't know you do coaching. And so they last a minimum of one hour. I help you Kind of make your next move. We chat through your ambitions. I help you grow your network. Uh, I tell you how to send emails to places that might seem out of your league, or maybe you're prepping for culinary school, or you want to negotiate a raise as you get promoted, or maybe you want to move to a different country. Anything that I feel like I've done in the past. Um, and that that I can help you with. It's basically just super focused one-on-one time with me that I can give to you to help however I can. So that's available for your convenience on JustinConnor.com slash coaching and I would love for you to check it out. In our non-industry story this week, I've got a few to share here. I wish I could recommend Super Bowl commercials. I personally didn't find any that interesting. Did anybody like Super Bowl commercials particularly? So um, sorry about that. Craig Adams, who is a guy who I've been following along for a long time, he posted a 72 hours in Bangkok travel video, and I really, really enjoyed that. His vlogs seem to be getting better and better, and so that is linked up, of course, I also really enjoyed um, this video that Casey Neistat helped Adobe with, uh, and it's called Keep Going. And it's a really, really well-produced movie all about um, three different creatives helping to design the branding for 368, which is Casey Neistat's project. Um, And just the way that it was shot, the way that it's presented, I would love to explore doing kind of like that kind of behind-the-scenes content for like a pop-up or documenting my own creative process. I just really, really enjoyed the way that they, they produced that. And of course, last up... um those of uh, the real non-industry story that isn't just a video or uh, <laughs> a vlog. Those of you that are that have been following on Twitter might have seen Pat Flynn and Caleb Wobjik, I hope I'm saying his name right, premiered a product that they created called SwitchPod, and they released it on Kickstarter. So it's an alternative to the Joby GorillaPod for vloggers, and I, I slid into their early bird pricing, which was awesome. So I got it on a super discount on the Kickstarter. Um, I'm very much so looking forward to that product coming through. I've got no shortage of, um, handheld tripods here at my place, and I'm gonna basically put a ball head on the switch pod, and that might be the winning combo for me, at least I'm, I'm thinking of that's how that's gonna go, and, um... I wish I only wish that it was coming sooner, so that I could bring it on this road trip. Um, but apparently, they're not slated to ship for a couple more weeks. I should also probably add for the people listening: SwitchPod. Basically, do you know how vloggers turn the flexible Joby GorillaPods into kind of like this arced selfie stick thing? The SwitchPod does that through a hard angle, so it's like a pistol grip for like a, a gun, basically. And then the metal piece comes up, and then it angles the camera so that the lens, and then those legs, um, th- that, that handle flips out and it forms a tripod. It's kind of hard. It's separate. I don't know. It's hard. It's, it's hard to, um, to, to describe over audio, but unless you're into wrapping the the Joby around tree branches and fences, it's actually a really awesome alternative. And I'm really, really stoked to get mine in the mail. Um, apparently they like tripled their funding goal on Kickstarter or something crazy. So it's basically guaranteed that I'm going to get mine. So hopefully it will get shipped out sooner rather than later. That will do it for this week's show. This has been episode ninety. Again, quickie reminder: if you're in LA and you want to meet up, check out Patreon.com/JustinConna because the RSVP RSVP form is linked up there. So if you aren't supporting yet and you that's, that's your first time checking out Patreon, that's a really good excuse to go over there. I will also be publishing my phone call with my first real chef boss on Patreon as kind of a bonus piece of content when I record that. I'm thinking that will be recorded tomorrow, um, but I have a very exciting road trip that starts off on. Um, Friday, so I'm flying to New York City tomorrow. Very very excited for that. Going to eat at Momofuku Co. Um, I think I'm going to meet up with Ray from Line Cook Thoughts. That should be fun. Um, but and go get a cocktail at uh, Atomix, Atomix, and Eleven Madison Park. Very very excited for that. But otherwise, that it's going to do it thank you so much for listening. Outro Justin is going to tell you the rest. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash. Patreon.com slash Kana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on JustinKanna.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes, and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just gonna get out of the out of the way here. Excuse, excuse me. Pardon me.